Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Sheehan, currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden and also co-hosts this podcast. I'm Jill Wine-Banks, Victor's co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl. And um, today I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins. And today's pin is one from the Intergenerational Politics Podcast, which is now iGen Politics. But I wanted to remind everybody that we are one and the same. Yes. Um, President Biden has been in office for more than one year, and make no mistake, he's had some remarkable achievements, including passing the American Rescue Plan and legislation that improves our nation's infrastructure, expanding vaccinations and testing, strengthening our economy and our status around the world. Yet against this backdrop of a real success, our country still appears to be deeply divided, with Republicans and Democrats making no headway on issues like gun reform, climate change, and voting rights. Why is this? What can the media do to foster greater civility and dialogue based on facts. Facts, something that's really important. And today we have Jonathan Capehart with us, and we'll be getting to know more about him and then talking about all these difficult issues. Jonathan is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, a member of the Washington Post editorial board, host of the podcast Capehart, and anchor of multiple shows, including the Washington Post's live YouTube show, First Look, which is also streamed on the Choice MSNBC on Peacock. He also anchors MSNBC's The Sunday Show with Jonathan Capehart, which I have been lucky enough to be a guest on. Jonathan also serves as a commentator on the PBS NewsHour and is featured on the popular Friday segment, Brooks and Capehart, which we will be sure to talk to him about. Um, He also recently hosted a special on MSNBC called A Promised Land, a conversation with Barack Obama, which was nominated for an Emmy Award in 2021 for outstanding news discussion and analysis. In short, I'm sure you've all heard or seen Jonathan Capehart somewhere and already know him as an enlightening and fascinating guest. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today. We're really delighted to have you with us. Uh, thank you, Jill. Thanks, Victor. Nice being here. Of course, I'll it's be so nice. sideways. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Um, you know, so you've had such an extensive career that it's hard to pinpoint exactly where to start. But because this is an intergenerational podcast with myself and other listeners being college students, I think let's begin with your college experience. You went to Carleton College in Minnesota. Um, tell us a little bit about your time there, and if that's where you found your interest in journalism. Oh, my interest in journalism uh, predates Carleton. Um, and in fact, I went to Carleton despite wanting to go into television journalism because there's no journalism program at Carleton. There's no television at Carleton. The only thing they had was radio. But I went to Carleton because, you know, long story, um, but, it, you know, this small liberal arts college in the middle of, you know, southern Minnesota Um I don't even know what the black population um, was then or is now in Northfield, Minnesota. But to me, you know, looking at the brochure, because um, young people back in the day, you would get a brochure. You would write, hand write a note <laughs> <laughs> to the college and they would send you this thing called a package. <laughs> where you would get all sorts of catalogs and things. And there was this beautiful little um, brochure with a hand-drawn sketch of uh, of Skinner Memorial Chapel, 
uh, on the campus. And you would, I would flip, I flipped through it so much that it felt the staples fell out. And, you know, I was keeping it together with tape. And, you know, I went to Carlton sight unseen. And when the, the van from the airport rounded the bend and I saw the chapel tower, it was as if I was coming home. I'd looked at that picture and those pictures wow. so many times that it was a familiar place. So um, Carlton, you know, I was there for four years and then I stayed an extra year to work as assistant to the president of the college. And I loved every minute of it, even the winters. <laughs> Which is uh, quite difficult. I just have to Minnesota. interrupt to say that Victor went to UCLA sight unseen. He had never been on campus until after he had accepted. And I think you went right before you started. Well, actually, you didn't start classes, but right before you were supposed to start classes, but didn't because of COVID. Yes, and, and well, unlike you, I couldn't tolerate the winter, which is why I moved yeah, I was gonna, to the warm. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to say, that was not much of a gamble. Like, hmm, am I trapped by sunny California? No, I think I'll stay. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, um, you know, what is one memory, experience, or lesson that you learned um, at Carleton that you still remember and take with you today? Oh, wow. Um, it was there that I was able to... Uh, nurture my love of journalism and to really be able to do things and have the freedom to do, well, freedom in the sense that, you know, I was the news editor of the newspaper and the news director of the radio station at the same time, my winter term of my junior year. Um, and so while I was, you know, going about freely doing that, my grades freely fell. <laughs> so, so, but it was in that time that, you know, I sort of understood, you know, this is what I want to do. And uh, this is the world I want to be in. And we'll see how I get there. And keep in mind, my freshman, my freshman summer uh, in college and my sophomore summer in college, I spent as an intern on the Today Show. So by the time I was the news editor and the news director, you know, I felt I was already on my way and I was the most qualified person on campus to do those jobs. <laughs> so, um, but it was really fun. And the, and the lesson I learned was, you know, hard work. If you love something, it's not work. And that's the, the number one thing I took away from it, even as the homework piled up and the grades <laughs> slid. <laughs> yeah, that is so true. Uh, and you worked at the Daily News as uh, New York Daily News, as well as Bloomberg News. At the Daily News, you were its youngest member of the editorial board. Um, I'm wondering, how long were you at the Daily News before joining the editorial board? Um, and I guess looking back and given Jill's and my attempt to bring an intergenerational perspective to politics in the news, do you think being the youngest member allowed you to add a new perspective to the editorial page. Uh, so I was, I think by the time I joined the editorial board, that was 93. So I was, I just turned 25. Wow. I think I just turned 25, if my math is right. Wow. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think in terms of being a 25-year-old at the table, sure, I can't help but bring a different perspective uh, to the conversation. Also, the only African-American uh, on the editorial board, also the only LGBTQ person uh, on the editorial board. And, okay, so here's my favorite story from when, and so all, all told, Victor, I was on the editorial board for nine years with a two-year 
carve out for Bloomberg News in the campaign. But in terms of being the young gay kid on the editorial board, so this was, oh my God, almost 30 years ago. Giuliani's mayor, and there back in the day were these movie theaters that, you know, they were same-sex movie theaters and lots of illicit things would happen there. And Giuliani started, you know, cracking down. He was closing them down. Um, but then at the same time, this bathhouse opened a block away from the gay men's health crisis in, in, in Manhattan. And we were like, what in the, what the hell is that about? We we're in the middle of the second wave of HIV infections. And so Gabriel Rutello, who is one of the legendary um, out gay columnists at Newsday, wrote a column about a tour he took. Of the, It's called the West Side Club. I don't know if it's still open. And I read that and I thought, wow, that was really smart. And so my uh, editor said, you know, you should try to do the same thing. So I, I had my then partner call, <laughs> make an appointment for a tour. <laughs> so we go and the guy's like, um, we're really busy. We don't have time to give you a tour. So I, um, <laughs> I said to, to Giuseppe, it's like, uh, I can't, we can't leave. I have to do this. So anyway, I go take the tour, get into the office really early, started writing the column. Um, my editor comes in and I say, uh, here it is. He comes back out of his office. He's beat red. And my editor, Arthur Brown, um, you know, we're talking back and forth. And he can't understand at one point, you know, why do, why do, um, younger gay men not pay attention to older gay men in terms of learning the lessons of the, of the epidemic. And he kept asking me all of these questions. And I said, okay, Arthur, I've got to tell you something. Um, you know, I'm gay, right? And he looks and he goes, uh, did I know for a fact? No. Did I suspect? Absolutely. <laughs> and then after that, we, we were off to the races and it in being able to have that kind of relationship remind you this was 1994 ish 95 when it was still that was back in the day that was gutsy of me to do that um and so th those were all the things that i brought to the table i was young i was black i was gay and you couldn't help but listen to what i have to say while you were also at The Daily News, you also ran a 16-month editorial campaign covering uh, the financial mismanagement of the Harlem's Apollo Theater, which earned you a Pulitzer Prize. Um, did the Pulitzer Prize change your life or career in any way? <laughs> um, yes, not immediately, because you think that immediately, oh, well, we got this Pulitzer, you know, everything's going to happen. And it didn't. <laughs> it didn't at all. And I remember saying to uh, my colleague, Karen Hunter, I was like, what happened? The phone's supposed to ring off the hook. I'm supposed to be getting these offers left and right. And she said, Jonathan, you know what your problem is? You, and this is what she said, you look like a million bucks. You, you, you look happy. Everyone thinks that everything's fine and that you're happy where you are. So why would they? And I was like, oh, damn it. That's not what I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended, up, I ended up within the year starting putting feelers out to try to to branch out and that's a whole that's a whole other story 
Okay, and that's, let's get to that story because it's part of the interesting tale of Jonathan Capehart. Because in 2000, which was right after that, and I, and I also just want to say, Victor, of course, wasn't born in 1997. And so he may not realize how closeted gay Wait, people sorry, were. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. He who, was, was, who was born in 97? He wasn't. Uh, Victor. Wasn't Victor, born. Oh, no, Victor, he's 18 you, years you, old, for God's sakes. Yeah. This, this is this an is, intergenerational uh, podcast. <laughs> Look, Jill, when Victor, when you said intergenerational, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, you know, late 20s, yeah. early 30s. But, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, we met when wow. he was 17 years old. We were both campaigning to be uh, Biden delegates. That's how we met. And he was 17 when we met. But he sat, his voice, doesn't he have a great voice for television or radio? No, it's fabulous. He, he does. That's why yes. I was lulled into this. I was lulled into this thing like, oh, okay, intergenerational. He's just out of, yeah. he's just out of college. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God! He's yeah, no. barely out of the world. I know it's amazing, <laughs> but oh, but I just amazing. wanted to point out to him how how daring and brave that God. was back then. Now we have so much more acceptance, but I, it's anyway. By two thousand, you had gone from the Daily News to Bloomberg, um, and mm-hmm. a year later, you began serving as a policy advisor to Michael Bloomberg, which I find really interesting because you went from journalism into politics and were doing, you know, advisory stuff. And then you went back to journalism. So uh, mm-hmm. talk about how difficult it is. I mean, of course, we have other role models for people who have gone from politics, like Nicole Wallace, for example, and Lawrence O'Donnell, who have gone from politics mm-hmm. into journalism. But you did this double switch. So what was that like? Yeah. And is that a good career advice for, for people Victor's age? Yes. Okay. So here I'm going to, I'm going to tell the stories and I'm going to tackle each piece. So going from the daily news to Bloomberg news, I put out the feelers and one friend kept saying to me, you should talk to Bloomberg news. You should talk to Bloomberg news. Bloomberg news is financial news. I, I don't do numbers. That's why I write. (laughs) So I kept putting him off and putting him off. And he said, no, really go to, you should talk to Bloomberg. So I, I email the then head of Bloomberg news. Um, We set up a time. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong the morning of that meeting. Um, we were living in the meatpacking district. So, you know, no cabs, no subways relatively nearby. It was also raining, like downpour raining oh. right at the time I was supposed to leave. My, what I called my interview suit was in the cleaners. And so another suit that was not appropriate for an interview was a fine suit, but yeah, you don't wear a pinstripe double-breasted suit to an interview. You just don't. <laughs> Trust me, kids. Um, so I had to put that on. I'm running in the rain. I can't get a cab. Um, it's hot and gross. By the time I get to uh, Park Avenue and Park and 60th, I'm hot, sweaty, mad, um, wet just angry because now I'm about 10 minutes late. I get upstairs uh, and I see this man in a bow tie way in the distance. And he's looking at me and I'm walking up and I can only imagine what my face looked like as I'm muttering to curses to myself. (laughs) And it was the head of Bloomberg News. Uh, He gives me a tour of Bloomberg. 
shows me everything. We sit in his um, glass-enclosed conference room. He shows me the Bloomberg terminals. And then he says, so what do you think? I said, about what? Because remember, to me, this was a formality. I'm already, I'm upset. My shoes and socks are soaking wet. And he said, about what? He goes, about working here. I said, uh, you know, this is all very nice, but it's not me. I don't do financial journalism. I'm not, I, it would be a mistake. This, this, is, this isn't of interest to me. And so then he justifiably gets angry and says, well, what do you want to do? And then he leans back in his chair. And I thought, I don't know you. I don't want to work here anyway. So I'm going to tell you the truth. And I looked at him and I said, I want to write a column once a week and go on television and talk about it like I do right now. And then I leaned back in the chair and folded my arms like he did. (laughs) And we're staring at each other. And he says to me, well, why can't you do that here? And then gave me the whole tour again, but this time showing me all of the columnists that he started writing, hiring, and all of the content that they were providing. Um. And he just put the pressure on me over the next three or four days. And I kept asking, what's a salary? I over email, what are we talking about in terms of salary? He would never answer. And I was like, dude, hello, come on. So he finally calls me up and he says, listen, um, I don't talk salary over email. It's not discreet. The salary he told me was triple what I was <sighs> making. That included bonus, that included this bonus thing. And he said to me, all I want you to do is write a column once a week and piss people off. I was like, uh, oh, I can do that. And I quit and I, the Daily News and I went to Bloomberg News. I love telling that story um, to um, young people, but anyone, when someone asks you what you want to do, tell them. Absolutely tell them. Remember, I said I wasn't interested in working there, not at all. But he asked me, I told him, and he presented me with this fantastic job. Fast forward, um, Bloomberg, Mike, Mike Bloomberg is the rumored to be running for mayor. And one of his right-hand people, Kevin Sheiky, and I started getting to know uh, Mike and his people around him. And he, they were asking me all these questions. And I was like, um, well, this is an issue. This is a problem. This is this. This is that. And from my years at the Daily News editorial board, at that point, I knew more about New York City, New York State, public mm-hmm. policy than he did, than any of them did. So we're here in Washington for George W. Bush's inauguration, and Shiki and I are at the Old Epic Grill, and he's now asking me yet again all these questions. And I said, you know, he's going to have an issue with this, that, and the other. And why is he going to run for mayor? And he just said, I mean, that's what we're hoping you'd help us with. It's like, shut up. So he said, listen, take this book. So he gives me Bloomberg by Bloomberg. He said, read it, and then let's talk. I'm reading the book, and I'm an active reader. I take a pen, I underline, I write notes. <laughs> and so in Bloomberg by Bloomberg, I'm writing, I'm reading, I'm like, oh my God. Oh, good Lord. Oh, Jesus, he's going to get killed on this. Oh, that's, oh, oh my God. Oh, I mean, it was just one thing after another. I was like, this is, th- no way. By the time I got to the last page, Victor, Jill, I don't know what possessed me. I closed the book and I looked up and I said, 
he's going to win. And that was in January, February of 2000. No, 2000, 2001. And the polls were against him. Folks were against him. He is a neophyte, but there was something about his authenticity that just something said to me, New York needs this. Uh, and so I decided, you know, as a, a, as a columnist who writes about politics, who's always wanted to work on a campaign, but just knew it would never happen given mm-hmm. being in journalism, but also to work on a campaign meant to like give up your life in terms of time, in terms of, of salary, because you take a pay cut and all of that other stuff. But when you work on a self-financed campaign, well, the thing I learned immediately was um, the hours are long, and that was it. My salary stayed the same. I still had weekends. <laughs> I was out at the beach every week, every weekend. Um, but I learned, I learned a lot uh, during that um, during that campaign, and the number one lesson I learned was everything on campaigns is not scripted. In <laughs> fact, uh, in fact, most things on campaigns are unscripted, and you just pray that those unscripted moments don't derail derail your campaign. And so that that was that's my journey and trajectory from journalism into politics. But then nine eleven happened. Um, I was out of journalism, so I couldn't write. So when Mike won and they came to me and they said, okay, you tell us where, what you want to do, not in an agency, in City Hall with us. And I thought about it long and hard. And I thought, you know, I missed out on being a part of the biggest story probably of my generation. So I want to go back to journalism. And so I went back. That was a mistake. Um, and, uh, I ended up leaving Bloomberg news and going back to the daily news as deputy editorial page editor. So what was a mistake? You said it was a mistake. It was a mistake. Uh, one, because the head of Bloomberg news decided, um, I don't want you to be an opinion writer. I want you to be a news, news reporter, news side journalist. And I said to him, um, I've never done that. That's a completely different mindset and skill set. And he goes, oh, just take out the coulds, woulds, and shoulds, and you'll be fine. I spent months trying to figure out, oh, and my job, the job title was perfect. Before I was national affairs columnist, I come back from the campaign, excuse me, I am the correspondent for global poverty. And my mandate was <laughs> spin the globe, poke in your finger, and then figure out the, the poverty angle in that particular country. So I spun the globe, finger hit Kenya. And so I spent months researching Nairobi and street children and all the whole, you know, Kibera, the whole thing. I went to Kenya um, and it was just, it was a fantastic, the trip was a fantastic experience, but it was painful because I, I had all sorts of column ideas. I had no news stories. And I, I pleaded with the guy, please let me switch back to column writing. I could get hit the ground running right now. He said, nope. And so I, just, I said, you know what? This, is, this isn't working. And so 
went back to the Daily News. Seems like a really interesting career path you've had. And and you, it has to have enriched your ability as a columnist, as an anchor, as a everything that you do now as a commentator, that you've had this dual track of politics, policy, writing, and I would guess news, that all of them have to mm-hmm. have contributed. So do you think that's a path that maybe more journalists should be taking? Well, sir, I think that the... The journalists or people who um, are in the television or print space who have these experiences can't help but be better journalists if they move into journalism. There's a reason why Nicole Wallace is someone people turn to and watch, because she comes to the table. She might not be a journalist, but she's someone who was a communications director to a president of the United States. She knows what questions to ask. She knows the kinds of questions to ask that someone who was just a reporter, meaning not having served a president, wouldn't even think to ask. Um, That's why Lawrence O'Donnell's show is so good. When stuff is happening in the Senate, you got to turn on Lawrence because he can tell you this is what's happening. This is what's going down. And I think that's what's going to make Simone Sanders such a great asset to MSNBC because, you know, she worked for Bernie. Then she worked for Joe Biden. So she's worked on two an- yeah. two bookends of the Democratic spectrum. Then she worked for the vice president of the United States. She yeah. will be able to come to the table and ask those questions that I and other people might not even think to ask. And so I think journalists are as good as the experiences they bring to the table. They are as good as the stories they they have been able to cover over their careers. Yeah. And they are as good as, um, you know, they are open to experiencing new things. I remember I had a, <clears throat> I had a meeting with a network news president. And technically, I wasn't supposed to meet with this person. But when a network news president says, hey, I'd love to I'd love to meet you, you go, because why not? And so I go and I'm sitting there and it's been years since I did not realize this was some sort of interview. But at a certain point, I was like, this guy is a hard ass. Why is he asking me all of these things? And at one point he's looking at my resume and between 2000 and 2007, I had on average a job a year. And he's looking at me and he says, "Um, so you were at the Daily News, then Bloomberg News, then the Bloomberg Campaign, then Bloomberg News, then the Daily News again, and then you went into corporate PR. (laughs) I mean, I look at your resume and I'm thinking, this, this guy is confused. He doesn't know what he wants. And I was like, oh, okay. It's on now. You're lucky. You're charming. So this is all internal monologue. So I say to the guy, um, okay, what you see as um, unfocused, I see as experience because Mm -hmm. I was a political reporter. I went to, I worked on a campaign 
and then went back to journalism. And now I have an insight into what it means to be on a campaign, what happens on a campaign, the discussions. So that only makes me a better political reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I went back into news and it didn't work. It didn't work out at Bloomberg. I went back to the Daily News. I got managerial experience as deputy. After that, I figured, you know what? This isn't working for me. I'm going to be a grown up. And to be a grown up, you got to be, you become a businessman. So I went, I went to Hill and Knowlton and yeah, it was the worst two years of my life being on the other side of that wall, but being on the other side of that wall, I now know what is mm-hmm. going on. All of the things that people are trying to get into the news, trying to keep out of the news, leaking stuff like that, message, messaging, talking points. Um, media training people. I did all those things. So now that I'm back in journalism on the editorial board at the Daily News, my BS detector is now through the roof. And so again, what you see as unfocused is has made me the journalist that is sitting in front of you right now. And he looks at me and he starts laughing. He goes, you don't know why you're here, do you? <laughs> I said, no. And he had a, he had a job that he was entertaining, uh, giving me. Wow. So listening to that reminds you me so much of things in my life, but it also makes me want to ask you because of your multiple experiences, what advice do you have for Democrats on strategy and messaging? Wow. Uh, that is, that is a huge question, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know what I want. You know what I want. This is, it's not so much messaging. I I want Democrats to have discipline. I want Democrats to behave in the way that Republicans behave. Now, for instance, Republicans during presidential campaigns, there might be, as we saw, sixteen people on the stage, all duking it out saying some of the nastiest things to each other, and then they fall off one by one. And then when there's the nominee, what do Republicans do? They circle the wagons and they do everything possible to get that person elected. They might not like the person, so they keep their mouths shut. They might love the person and they're all over TV talking about the person. And if the person is, you know, you go to a particular Republican and that person doesn't like them, They focus on the policy rather than the person. Well, we as Republicans, we need to have this. Democrats do not do that. They are always trying to fight the last Mm -hmm. war, usually a petty war, um, with someone else. And it ends up depressing enthusiasm, depressing turnout. And then folks wonder, well, gosh, Democrats, they're they're so lousy, they can't get out of their own way. Well, you're part of the problem. (laughs) That's why. So if anything, that's what I want. I want Democrats to do. And then sometimes messaging is part of the problem. I mean, President Obama thought, well, the work will speak for itself. No, you, you have got to get out there and tell people what you're doing, what you did, and what you've done. And you got to keep telling them. And I think President Biden and mm-hmm. his administration, they haven't done it enough, but we're in year one. 
And so hopefully now that we're in year two, he gets out there and he gets out there and says, this is what I've done. But Democrats get out there and say, this is what we this is what we've done for you. This is what we've done for the country. And this is how we're trying to save the country from, you know, these authoritarians out here who are still trying to exert their will. I certainly hope that people in the White House are listening to that advice because those are two really good things to follow up on. Yeah, and just switching back to maybe your career a little bit, since 2009, you've been affiliated with MSNBC. Um, You began as a contributor for the network, um, and in December of 2020, were named the host of The Sunday Show with Jonathan Capehart. Um, First, tell our audience a little bit about the goal of that show um, on Sunday. So, I mean, when you have a show on from 10 until noon, (laughs) you're competing with Meet the Press and Face the Nation and This Week and State of the Union. And so, um, you know, I wanted to play in that space. And when we were trying to come up with a name, going all through all these machinations, I remember it, it hit me in the middle of the night. And I just thought, wait, why don't we just call it The Sunday Show? Because that's kind of the message I'm trying to get across. And so what my goal has been over the last year is to not necessarily compete with, you know, the grownups in the, um, in the field, but to be in some sense, um, another option, you know, you still, you know, we get, you know, big time members of Congress, the house, the Senate, governors, um, presidents of think tanks, up and coming, you know, political stars. And we're talking about the news and the issues of the day and trying to bring um, new voices and diverse voices to the conversation. And so um, what I'm trying to do every week is say to people, here, here's the news that's either happened in the past week, but we're always forward looking. So it's what's coming up, what's coming up next week, if there's anything big, um, or if there's an issue that was the rage all last week, and is going to have future implications, you talk about it in that way. I am someone who's not interested in um, a shout fest on, uh, on my show. When I have people on, it is not about me arguing with someone or trying to show everyone, oh, well, I'm the smartest person here on your television screen. If I've invited someone on my show, it is because they are the expert. And they are the ones the audience is looking to for their expertise. And so I ask questions and I get out of the way. I ask questions and I listen. Because that's the other thing uh, I've, I've heard from the audience. They like the fact that I ask the questions that they're thinking but you can only ask the questions that the audience is thinking if you're actually listening to the guest. And there are too many people in, in my profession who don't listen to the guest. And then by listening, I'm out of the way, which then allows the audience to actually learn or um, have their views reinforced or have their views challenged. But they could, that can only happen if I'm not constantly saying, well, wait a minute, Jill, one second, Jill, but no, no, you're wrong, Jill. No, that doesn't work. 
it doesn't work. And besides, I would never say that to Jill because she's never wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, um, something that Jill and I, um, on that note, often discuss with journalists who come on the show is what they think of the state of cable news. Um, you know, viewers of your show receive one fax, while re- viewers of Fox News get a completely different set of facts. Um, is there anything that you try to do to get facts to the Fox News audience, or do you think that's um, not even possible anymore? The Fox News audience is not interested in in what we're talking about. That's why they're the Fox News audience. You know, what I'm trying to do with the audience that I have is present to them um, news they can use. Because while the Fox audience isn't coming to me, I know that there are folks in my audience who have relatives (laughs) who watch Fox. And I view my role as, okay, here's the ammunition you need, the rhetorical ammunition you, you could need or could use to talk to your Fox News watching relatives. And, you know, and do it in a way where, you know, you don't have to constantly rewind, like, wait a minute, they're shouting over each other. I don't know what they're saying. No. Here, Jill Weinbanks is on to talk about the January 6th Select Committee and the significance of this particular moment. And to, and to have the clarity of, of that answer, that's what I'm trying to, to give to my audience. And if, you know, there are some Fox News viewers who are watching, great. But my, my job is not to, is, I can't reach them. I, I just can't. The other thing that I should point out is, you know, we put out, I, I've been inviting Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Congresswoman Liz Cheney Every week since my show got off the ground, I've been I've asked for Mitt Romney, Senator Romney. I have asked for Republicans to come on my show um, because I do think it's important for the audience to hear what members from the other party are saying. But notice the the names that I've mentioned. I'm not interested in having Republicans who are you know well versed in the big lie who are going to use the opportunity to spread the big lie. Um, And I'm also not interested in having someone who voted to decertify the election. Why give those people a platform? This is, this is meant to be a conversation um, for, especially if a Republican comes on, it's a Republican who, with whom my difference is not our view of democracy. Our difference is we both want X but our ways of getting there are di- are different. So let's have that conversation. And so far, no no sitting Republican has um, accepted an invitation. It's so interesting because I, of course, am old enough to remember a time when Democrats and Republicans shared a common set of facts. And in fact, all the networks back in those days also had a common set of facts. There was disagreement on the policy implications and strategies to improve those facts, but not on the facts. Um, And Victor and I have also been trying to get Republicans on, and we have had mostly the Lincoln Project type, and we recently had uh, David French on, who is a conservative, um, you know, a traditional conservative, and we had a wonderful Mm -hmm. conversation that didn't debate the facts. We were able to have a real real conversation. And that's one of the reasons that I love seeing you on PBS NewsHour's, the the Brooks and Capehart segment, where you can have 
civil conversations. And so do you think that attracts a different audience than your Sunday show? Oh, sure. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, the PBS audience is a, is a distinct audience. And I've, I've come to learn that if you had like, what is it? Is that the Venn diagram where you've got the two circles and they meet in the yeah, middle? Yeah. Well, that middle is very small. The people who watch me on PBS by and large don't even know I have a cable show. And the folks who watch me on cable, there might be a little more overlap with the mm. folks who see me on Brooks and Capehart, but very little. And so they are, they are two different audiences. And I think it's because cable is viewed as the shout fest yeah. and they don't want the shout fest. They want a civil conversation. They want to be able to hear what each side is saying. And that's not to say that folks aren't coming to those conversations with their own um, preconceived notions. And, you know, I'm from the left, I'm from the right. Uh, Certainly they do. I hear from them, but they love the fact that we can have these conversations in a civil manner. Uh, And it just, I think, makes it makes everyone feel smarter, but it makes them feel better that you can disagree and not, you know, want to bludgeon the person on the other side of the table. I think it's a great model for how we can have conversations with people with opposing views. And I love this concept that you expressed about preparing people to have that conversation by giving them the facts they need to make the arguments with their relatives who may have opposing views. And I know it's helpful to me, although most times when I talk to Trump supporters, I honestly can't get through because they don't accept reality. They don't accept facts. And when you ask them for a factual predicate for their positions, they often just don't have them. And as I say, I remember when, you know, going back to um, William Buckley and Gore Vidal, who had, you know, the, I can't remember the name of the show, Point of View or something, uh, where they had... Point Counterpoint? Point Counterpoint, that is it. And it was a great show where you really felt like, okay, I I can see what their point of view is. I don't agree, but I understand it. Um, And that's, of course, I think a goal that all shows should have and trying to bring people on. But I also love what you said about having sort of a line about you don't want to give a platform to the nonsense. And Mm -hmm. I I wonder, would you have Donald Trump on your show if he called you up and said, I'd like to come on your show? That's really hard. Um, (laughs) I understand. Like part of me is like, yes. But then the other part of me is hell to the no. Um, (laughs) I do think, and and Margaret Sullivan wrote this in her column, where she thought Steve Inskeep, who did do an interview with Donald Trump recently, the one where Donald Trump hung up on him. Yes. They did it, but they taped it and aired it later, which was smart because that allowed them to go through and, you know, do a whole setup. They did a whole setup of like, here's what's... Here's what's happened. Here's what we're going to be talking about. And then on the back end, I think they um, then teased out all of the falsehoods and lies and all that other stuff to put it all in context. If I could do that with Trump, I absolutely would do that. But that interview 
Now, ever all the stuff I said about not talking over somebody and all of that stuff, that would go out the window with Trump because <laughs> I, I get offended personally, but also for my audience when someone comes on and tries to spout nonsense, tries to convince me and convince the audience that two plus two equals five. Mm-hmm. And that you're the idiot for not even realizing that two plus two equals five. And I don't have time for that. It is, a, it is an insult to the audience. Rudy Giuliani came on, on the show um, when it was still AM Joy, but during the audition phase. And we were talking about, okay, who, who is making themselves available um, to come on on Sunday? And the Trump campaign put out a list of people that included Rudy. And I said, oh, get Rudy. Let's get Rudy and let's see what happens. I spent the whole time trying to figure out, I've interviewed Rudy many times. I was like, which Rudy am I going to get? Am I going to get charming Rudy or am I going to get flamethrowing Rudy? And the Treasury Department sanctioned this Russian agent who Rudy had very close ties to. And so I decided... I'm solely going to focus on the sanctions. No matter what he says, I'm going to focus on the sanctions because I pretty much, I think I know what he's going to do. He started try. he started out as charming Rudy and then immediately moved into belligerent Rudy where we were talking over each other and he was saying all sorts of nasty things and I would stop him and I'd shut him down. Like, no, no, you're not doing this here. Answer the question. And, um, you know, people, people responded to that because I think the audience was also thinking, why is, it, we, why is he spouting nonsense? And sometimes in cable, um, hosts let the person spout the nonsense, just let them go on. Yeah. But that's frustrating for the audience because the audience is like, are you going to jump in there? Yeah. Are you going to stop them? Because at a certain point, it's too late to stop them, you know? So with Rudy, I mean, if Donald Trump were to call up and say, you know, hey, I, I, you know, I, I want you to interview me, I would set up some parameters and say, okay, yeah. I'll do it, but you have to agree to this, knowing full well he might not, you know, he'll might, he might renege on a lot of things. But I would then have the foundation saying, you, you know what, um, uh, Mr. Trump, we're done here. Thanks, but I'm out. Excellent. I, I think we might have time for maybe Victor to ask one last question before we run out of time. Yeah, definitely. Let, let, let's do it. Um, all right. So usually on the podcast, we try to ask our guests um, any advice that they have for students. So I'm wondering first, any parting advice for students, young people, anyone interested in journalism, and also maybe just for our audience, where they can find you um, as we've talked about such a wonderful career of yours? <laughs> um, well, the number one advice uh, I say to students or to anyone is do something that you love to do. Um, have a passion. It's really have a passion. And so that passion could be for something that you want to do professionally, or it could be something that you have as an avocation, something that brings you joy and pursue that. For me, 
being a journalist and particularly being a television journalist was my North Star. And so when I was going through those ups and downs, particularly when I was at Hill and Knowlton and thought, I've totally wrecked my career. <laughs> I've totally wrecked everything. And I don't know how I'm going to get back there. But when you have the North Star, that's the thing that focuses you. So that when, the, when things get bumpy or you, get, you, you veer off course, as long as you have that North Star, you, know how to, you can figure out how to get back. And I think far too many times people have dreams and they have North Stars and either people beat it out of them, people talk, talk down to them like, oh, you'll never, you'll never be able to do that. You'll, you'll never accomplish that. Or, or they might ask, well, how are you going to do that with the tone of you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. And that's really, that's, that is sad. And so hang on to those dreams, hang on to, to that North star, because it'll get you through a lot. And then the other thing is it's, it, it is what keeps you grounded and keeps you true to who you are. Uh, keeps you true to what it is, how you view your life. And so that's my advice. And you can use that for any purpose, but you can use, but you can certainly use that for um, your professional life. And also now that I'm at the tender age of 54, <laughs> you, and, 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 and I'm sure Jill knows this too, you never stop learning. Um, you, life is not linear. <laughs> it's pell-mell. <laughs> it's like this. And once you understand that, oh, and then I remember when I was your age, Victor, I thought that when I got to be my age, everything would be figured out. I'd have all the answers because I'd be older. And I'm, telling, I'm here to tell you right now, Victor, you will never have all the answers. And once you know that, once you learn that, the freedom that that gives you to explore and pursue, um, it's, and then in the exploration and in the pursuit, you learn who you are and you learn what you, what you, what you value, what you don't. You learn a lot about people and you begin to learn that it's not how many friends you have. It's the quality of the friendships that you have. And whether that is one person, five people, or 10 people, even having just one quality friendship um, is, you know, that, that should be one of, one of a person's pursuit is to have that one person with whom they've got an ironclad friendship. And if you've got more than one ironclad real, then you're wealthy beyond measure. Jonathan, thank you so much. That was, it's great advice. And this has been a totally fascinating episode. We're very grateful that you spent the time with us. And uh, you've brought up lots of memories for me that I can't wait to share with Victor. So thank you for being here. <laughs> yes, thank you so Jill, much, Jonathan. Jill, Victor, thank you very, very much. Victor, I loved our interview with Jonathan Capehart. And there were two things that really resonated with me personally. And one was on how when he was being interviewed, without knowing he was being interviewed, he was trying to make sense of his diverse career path. 
And I had the same thing when I decided that I wanted to be a corporate business person and had to take my resume and completely focus on things in my past that would qualify me for that, even though all I had ever been was a trial lawyer. Uh, well, also general counsel of the Army, which I thought was good background because I supervised over 3,000 lawyers. That means you have some management skills. Um, but the other thing was, as I was listening to his wonderful interview story, I had so many funny interviews, but the one that was the closest to his experience was I was going down to Wall Street for my first interview outside of the law school. When you're in law school in your senior year, firms come to the school and interview you. And then if they like you, they invite you downtown. So I was going down to Wall Street for the first time in my life. And I had figured out the subway system from Columbia, which is the Upper West Side to the lowest part of New York you can get to. And I was walking up the stairs from the subway station looking around in awe at Wall Street and tripped on the stairs, ripped my hose, had a bloody knee, and I'm thinking, I can't walk into an interview with a bloody knee. And I ran to a drugstore, bought a new pair of hose, because in those days that was a mandatory part of being dressed for a woman, bought some Band-Aids, bandaged myself up, changed my hose, and went to my interview. And so when I was thinking of him, you know, walking through the rain and going into this interview in a soaking wet suit, it reminded me of that very experience. And I know that you're going to have some of those stories soon in your life. Uh, so just know that you have to be prepared for almost anything that could happen, uh, whether it's your interview suit getting destroyed by the rain or having a bloody knee as you're trying to walk into. Uh, something, by the way, that happened to me a second time when I was going on stage with Stephanie, for Miller, Stephanie Miller for the right? sexy yeah. liberal uh, blue wave tour and fell flat on my face in front of the audience oh. and then had to go on stage with a big hole in my hose and a bloody knee. So, you know... Uh, I've matured a lot what? in those years, and I just went on stage and just ignored that it had happened. Although if I were a better performer, I would have made a joke about it and brought attention to it. Because everybody had seen it. It wasn't like I could hide it. But anyway, it's good experience for you to think about. Oh, for sure. I mean, there were so many parts of the episode and what you just said where young people can really learn from. And it was during that moment when he was you know, at Bloomberg and he realized... In that moment, I think, you know, if I don't speak up for myself, who will to make his, you know, interest to make his work clear to the, his boss, I think is an important lesson for me, important lesson for any young person who, you know, may want something, but may be scared of, you know, making their voice heard. I think that lesson applies for all generations. And um, I really appreciated that. But also, you know, I think going back to what you just said, whatever life throws your way, you just have to be prepared yeah. for it. And if it results in a bloody knee or, you know, a torn down jacket because of rain, you know, just push through and find another way and, and hopefully you'll, you'll survive. But, um, you know, just being prepared for that. And then I think at the end, he says something very powerful, which is, you know, no matter how much you think you figure out life when you're in your mid fifties, you never do. And just keep learning and, and keep trying new things. And, um, you know, he, he was a fascinating guest and very funny. And even though he was tilted, he 
was great for us, and 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 I, you know, we should definitely have him back to talk more about his, um, you know, get his perspective on politics and, yeah. you know, strategy and campaign. I think that would be a really fascinating episode with him too. And I will say, for my generation, which is a generation or two ahead of his, you never stop learning, and mm-hmm. your career path is not linear. He said. And it isn't. But one thing prepares you for the next, just as his experience in being a journalist prepared him to be a policy analyst for the Bloomberg mayoral race and then prepared him to go back into journalism and into public relations um, and also to recognize when something isn't making you happy and that you should be passionate about what you do and to move on from that. I think your generation... Uh, is much more prepared for that and is willing to say, I'm quitting this job to look for something that will make me happier. And you will always be more successful at something that you're happy with. And I hope our audience has learned that lesson from listening to this interview. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Jonathan Capehart as much as we did. We'll be back next week for another episode of iGen Politics. Follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. And also you can subscribe to us on YouTube as we're also on video. Please leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts too as that helps us tremendously. And we'll see you next week.